attitudes are beginning to change. A stigma surrounding dyslexia. Muddled messages were received the by the brain. Dyslexia. It will not hold you for dyslexic. It's kind of you see anything to dyslexia. Dyslexia. Hello, I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Charlie. And you're listening to Move Beyond Words. In this podcast, we are exploring dyslexia in all its surprising, creative, and often misunderstood forms. Each week, we invite different guests to talk, listen, and share. Expect authentic, off-the-cuff stories to connect with and learn from, and celebrate the ways in which we can all move beyond words. On today's episode, we are joined by Sean Douglas. Sean is a successful content producer specialising in video and podcasting, having worked with the likes of the BBC and the National Trust. But it was battling through the UK education system and then being launched into the world of the creative industry that Sean noticed his attention had to be refocused on his dyslexia. As a result, Sean created the website and podcast designed for adults with dyslexia, named The Cobpast. Sean has been public in voicing his concerns regarding dyslexia discrimination in the workplace, appearing on a number of panels and broadcasts. Welcome to the show, Sean. Hi, Sean. Hey, how's it going? Good, thanks. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. It's a weird old world at the moment, isn't it? It sure is. It really is. And um, I just want to say like a huge thank you. You know, it's a real pleasure to have you with us today. And you've been such a wonderful influence within the community of people with dyslexia. And it's a pleasure to meet you finally. Um, We found it really fascinating reading your experience through your COD past. And I read you didn't get diagnosed until your early 20s. So can you tell us how it was growing up not knowing about your dyslexia? Well, I actually did know I was dyslexic. Um, It was just never diagnosed. And I'm not quite sure how I knew. Like, I don't remember seeing like a TV show or something. I just knew about this thing called dyslexia. So obviously through osmosis, it had sunk in and I knew that I had it. Um, I didn't know it was something that I could go and get help for. So I kind of just muddled along. I thought other, other kids had been diagnosed with dyslexia. I knew I was dyslexic, but I thought well, they must be like really bad. That's why they got diagnosed. I just need to kind of wait around. And if I'm bad enough, I'll get diagnosed. But I kind of never did. So yeah, from about the age of 14, I knew that I was dyslexic. And that probably was a contributing factor to failing every pretty much everything at school. So you associated being bad with dyslexia? Well, when I say bad, I mean, my dyslexia was of a, of a level that would have required me to get assistance so okay. there may have been other people that that struggled more than myself potentially who got assistance at school yeah because so because there's a complete spectrum that in school when they do assess you you have to kind of prove that you're like severely dyslexic to get support did they flag that to you or no no it was flagged uh, at primary school so primary school i was taken out of um or middle school actually i was taken out of mainstream lessons certain times a week and we were forced to go to the library to read these books i don't know if you had them when you were younger but they were called fuzz buzz no, and it was this no. little character um we it was kind of referred to as oh yeah you're going to fuzz buzz but basically fuzz buzz was this book with this character who was like a ball of fluff and they were really <laughs> easy books to read 
And so I really hated reading fiction. I always liked reading stuff about, I don't know, geography or um, tractors or, do you know, stuff that was kind of tangible rather mm. than stories. And I hated reading Fuzzbuzz, so I refused to read them. <laughs> and my teachers just said, well, if you're not going to read Fuzzbuzz, you're not reading anything. You're not going to read your tractor books. You're not going to read your solar system books. And that was about the age of 10. And I don't think I, from that point, I don't think I'd read a book for another like eight, nine, 10 years of my own accord. Like I read stuff for GCSE because I was forced to, but I didn't pick up a book and go, right, I'm going to read this um, based on that experience. So counterproductive, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was going to say that um, similar experience. It's just uh, as soon as you associate a struggle with reading, there's no, I don't feel encouraged to do it unless you have to. but I suppose, was there any teachers or were your parents um, supportive and did they have an understanding of what you were going through? No, because I don't think they knew what dyslexia was. Um, they knew that I struggled. My mum knew that I struggled and she did things like getting tutors and stuff like that. But she kind of, I mean, I've never actually discussed it with my mum, but I think she kind of just thought I'd be okay. Like she, you know, she knew that I was pretty headstrong. So if she was like, right, you're going to sit down and you're going to do your maths homework, I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, You know, she could see that I tried my hardest, but she knew I was going to do what I wanted to do. And she was just kind of happy to support me doing that. The only thing that my mum was really tough on, like I never thought I'd come home and go, like, I've got an F and my mum would be upset. She'd just go, did you try your hardest? And I'd go, yeah. And she'd go, okay, that's cool. If I came home and I was in trouble, like I'd been fighting someone or something like that, that's when I'd get in trouble. You know, anything like fighting or gambling. I remember I made a bet with someone for 10p and my mum found out. She marched (laughs) me back to his house to give him his 10p bet. She's like, you're not going to go gambling. So it was like all that moral stuff that my mum was about. It wasn't really about academics. And she kind of just thought, well, I reckon from what I what I see of the relationship we had and how she treated me I think she just thought Sean's going to be okay um and she supported me with the things that I enjoyed so I wanted to be a musician at that point um so she did you know scrimp and save to buy me things like you know I remember she bought me a keyboard years ago which was 250 quid which is still a lot of money now but back then 250 quid was a huge amount for a keyboard Mm. but she bought it for me and by the age of 14 I had a recording studio that I'd built in my bedroom so she kind of saw that I was into stuff and she just thought well let me support him in the direction that he wants to go in and that's kind of how things worked really. Was there anything that you struggled with at school? Yeah I mean everything everything um <laughs> like you know the typical stuff like art music um art music and PE I was good at I got good grades you know I was I was probably good at stuff I just didn't get good grades I remember I was brilliant at French when I was 10 wow. um and then when I went to high school they kind of knocked that out of me and I ended up getting an F because I didn't get on with my teacher and you know I was seen as disruptive and I was kicked out of my classes all the time um so I got F I got an F in French and stuff but you know now I speak Spanish and a bit of Chinese so you know that skill set was always there it's just how it's nurtured and how you're taught and if you're taught in a way that that your brain can handle um you know I found my own way to learn Chinese and I found my own way to learn Spanish um and it wasn't sitting in a classroom they're not easy languages to learn either that's so impressive what's your approach to learning the language what's your method 
brute force. <laughs> so the way that I learned Spanish was, so I used to have like quite a long journey to work. So I had a Spanish book and I'd go through and I'd learn all the phrases and all of that stuff. And then I'd go to the Spanish library and I'd get these books. They were called Leer en Español, so read in Spanish. And they were all different colours. So like you had uh, a green book, which had 300 words so it would just use a vocabulary of 300 words and then you'd have a book which was read which had a vocabulary of 500 words so i'd read through all the books and then i'd write down all the the words that i didn't know and i'd put them on a sheet of paper on one side spanish one side english and then i'd learn them so i'd go through every word in english and then be able to say the spanish and if i got one wrong so there'd be like 50 words if i got the 49th word wrong i'd have to go back to the start Wow. and keep going till I got everything right. Once I got the English to Spanish right, I'd go the other side. So I'd go Spanish to English. So I'd have to translate the Spanish back to English and do the same thing. If I got one wrong, I'd go back to the top and start again till I got everything right. And then I'd pick out that book and read it again. And I'd read the whole book and I'd know every word. So a huge lot of repetition. Yeah. That is, that is very impressive. That's crazy. That the, the length that you have to go to to get I mean I don't speak any other languages <laughs> and I've always struggled um dance with, well <laughs> dance is my language dance? I speak with my body <laughs> <laughs> but um but no like French and 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 uh Spanish and wow I mean that was something that it was I was completely alienated by to be honest I was just trying to grasp English um so amazing to see how you um yeah managed to to throw yourself into learning another language and did you get freedom from from doing that I mean freedom yeah I mean it, it opened up avenues it opened up yeah. avenues um I the reason I started learning Spanish is because I do a lot of salsa dancing and I really got into flamenco music. So I wanted oh, to understand what wow. people were saying when they were playing flamenco. So I think now if you're you've talking got our a, language. <laughs> well, I think if you've got a reason to want to learn it, like, because now I don't speak Spanish much. I've got a Spanish editor that I work with and I try and speak Spanish with him, but it's just so long since I've spoken it. But if you've got a reason to speak it, it becomes, it, 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 there's a, the, you've got a catalyst for it. Like if you're learning French and you're never going to use it apart from if you go on a holiday to, to Dieppe or something, um, it's, it's kind of pointless because it's such mm. a, it's such a commitment for something that you're only going to use here and there. What's the point? And we all speak English and I know it's arrogant, but wherever you go, you, you, you everyone speaks English. So it, it's kind of pointless. And I know we should learn languages, but if you are in that position, it's, it's actually really difficult because all of the music you listen to is in English, all of the TVs in English. Whereas if you're from Portugal, I used to live with a guy from Portugal. He knew like five languages because even things like buying a toaster, there was never instructions in Portuguese. So he'd have to read the Spanish or he'd have to read the English. Whereas we don't have to do that. So I think you need that commitment. And I worked for Chinese um, news bureau for eight years as well. So that was why I got to use Chinese. Otherwise it would just be pointless to use if you're not, to learn if you're not going to use it. Yeah, definitely. And and it kind of comes back to that repetition, doesn't it? The more you repeat something, the easier it gets. And did you find when you were in various different workplaces that there was that support there or that time there um, to kind of assist you with your needs? 
No, I don't think I had any support in the workplace until the job that I'm in now. Um, I think one, because when I started out in my career, I went down a technician route. I wanted to be a technician. So that was kind of easy for someone with dyslexia. Like even when I went to university, there wasn't that much writing. There was lots of exams, but I kind of liked them. It was like physics and sound and all the stuff that I like. And then some of our exams were, were vivas. So we could just talk for our, for our exams or our, or our um, accreditations and stuff. So that was kind of easy. I was, you know, working for a Chinese news bureau, so I didn't have to write English. I just had to do stuff or listen to things. Um, I was a cameraman, so I'd just shoot stuff. So there, there was very, very little writing needed. Mm. Um, I then started working for a uh, kind of broadcast PR agency, and there was a little bit more writing there. Um, but not much. It was mainly emails. And actually, if I look, if I think back to what my emails must have looked like, they must have made absolutely no sense to no one because I didn't have any assistive tech or anything like that. And then I started working at HSBC as a as a producer. And that, well, I was an editor and I, I kind of moved from being an editor to a producer. And that was when I started kind of having creative control and, and, and producing things and writing scripts. And that was when it started becoming a bit of a problem. But I think what you find with big organisations, and I don't know if it's better or I just shout louder now, but when you deal with the IT service, you know, you say, well, I need like Clara Reed or I need text help. They're just like, well, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't uh, satisfy security. So you can't have it. And then you're like, but I need it. And so there's all this bureaucracy um, sometimes just to get in the stuff that you need because the IT guy says no. You know, I remember I used to um, we used to make DVDs, and the the computer that made the DVDs didn't have a spell checker on it. So sometimes I'd make a batch of three thousand DVDs, and it would have a spelling mistake, and then I'd have to go through a really convoluted system of saving it onto a USB, take taking it over to the computer, putting the USB stick in, you know, cutting and pasting it in, and it was just so bureaucratic. Versus can you put spell check on this machine? And no one would do it because it wasn't connected to the system. So you do get into situations like that. And although I had some of this assistive tech at home, I couldn't use it in the workplace. I noticed on your website, actually talking about assistive tech, do you have any, any favorite? Me and Charlie are basically writing emails more than ever just since we kind of launched our company and um yeah if you've got any tips <laughs> i mean i love text to speech so text to speech is my savior um because i will never see the mistakes that i make so if you can listen back you just instantly hear the mistakes um there's a few different modes you can use so you can have it so it it what they call it echo mode so it will speak what you've typed so that's really good for comprehending what you've written um but it can slow you down a bit depending on how fast you touch type and so what's good is to kind of write what you've written and then listen back to it and that's when you'll see all of your spelling mistakes or missed words or all of that stuff so i use that quite a lot um what else do i use global autocorrect is great it kind of just changes your spelling so if you spell something right it just corrects it for you and you just keep typing which is always good um I loved um, a lot of the, um, what do you call them? The audio, audio note-taking software. 
because a lot of the time when I go into meetings, the first thing I do is say, hey, I'm dyslexic. I'm going to be recording this meeting. Has anyone got a problem with it? And most of the time people go, no. So stick the recorder down, but then you've got to deal with the recording. So um, audio note taker and note talker are really good at turning those recordings into something that's usable. So those are kind of my go-to technologies. But to be honest, at the moment, I don't really use any because I think when you're kind of like an entrepreneur or you're working in a kind of solo capacity or in a very, very small team where you don't have the support, that's when assistive technology is really kind of useful. Now I've got a massive team. Well, I've got, I've got kind of a small team of my own, but I work within a larger content team. So, you know, if I need some copy written, I just write it. I don't care if it's got spelling mistakes, if the grammar's not correct, I can go to someone who's a copywriter and just say, can you check that for me? Um, you know, and also I just don't care if I make spelling mistakes because people want me because I'm good at making podcasts. Like if I've got spelling mistakes in my email, that's your problem if you've got an issue with it. Because the the more I spend time trying to correct my spelling, the less I'm going to be producing podcasts and you want me to produce podcasts. So, you know, I kind of don't (laughs) use any at the moment. I love that. And and Yeah. yeah, just own it you know, this is who I am. This is my ability. This is what I can do. This is what I can't. And, you know, thrive in that. I love that. And it sounds when you did use assistive tech, it was audio based. And I can see that this is a running theme throughout your career. So how did you get into podcasting? You know, you said about you, you started with music at a very young age um, and you've kind of come back around, but what was the door that opened yeah, I mean, I, I started off in television. Well, I started off wanting to be a musician at school and then I ended up failing everything at GCSE. So I kind of went your route. I started doing performing arts because that was the only thing I could do really um, to get my grades up. So I did a BTEC in performing arts and I thought performing arts would be great. I'd get to play music and stuff um, and I didn't get to play any music. Um, I did lots of dance, which I was really good at. Um, and I did a lot of the technical stuff. I did the lighting and things like that. And then kind of you could say my career started because I fancied one of the gladiators <laughs> which one Jet do you remember Jet the yes gladiator? <laughs> I really fancied Jet um, I Jet <laughs> I used to box as a kid and um, I'd, I'd been boxing and I got hit in the head quite a few times and I had a trapped nerve in my neck so I had this like <gasps> big neck collar on and um, I used that to skive out of school because there was this new arcade that was opening up and Jet was coming to um, to to open it. So I was just like, oh, my neck's really hurting. I've got to go. <laughs> so I went to see Jet. And um, while I was there, there were these little kids with these massive cameras. And I just thought, what the hell's, what are these kids doing? And, I, and at that point, I'd started getting into filming productions and stuff. So I thought, what's going on here? And it was this organisation called um, Youth Cable Television. And it was set up in Labrick Grove to kind of help kids from deprived backgrounds get a foot in the door in the TV world. Because at that time, TV was just, it was impossible to get into. It's not like now you can go into Dixon's and buy a DSLR. Mm. A TV camera costs 30 grand. Like, so there was a very, very specific route into television. And it was just great. It was like this place. We had TV cameras. We had a studio. You know, the person who ran it was a woman called Sabrina Guinness, who was really connected with Hollywood and stuff. So sometimes, you know, she'd just bring, I don't know, Harrison Ford would come down and we'd just do an interview with him or Dan Aykroyd or Mick Jagger or someone. 
Um, but it was a great stepping stone for a lot of people that probably wouldn't have had an opportunity to get into television. And we just had a TV studio. We had cameras. We could make whatever we wanted. We could put it, we had like a little slot on cable television. So we just put our staff out oh, and it's great so to cool. make stuff and see it go out on TV. Um, and then that got me into university. So I went to Ravensbourne College of Design and Communication um, and I did the TV course there. And then through that, I you know, went into TV and became a news cameraman. Uh, and then from there, kind of moved into PR. So that was more editing and directing. And then I moved into corporate videos, which was then when I started producing. And then I had like loads of little freelance gigs on the side that I was doing as well. When I was at HSBC, my TV studio closed down. And I was like, right, I need to find another job. And because I'd taken this weird route, because I hadn't like been a researcher and an assistant producer and all of this stuff, I'd become a producer by accident and didn't have kind of the stepping stones that I needed. So I took a job as an assistant producer at this production company and um, I just did really badly. Um, they It just wasn't set up in the way that I could get things done. There wasn't a lot of trust there. And I was given other people's work to do that they couldn't be bothered to do, which was stuff that I found difficult, like spreadsheets and all of this stuff. And like they didn't trust me with passwords. So I needed certain documents to make these spreadsheets and I couldn't get them unless I asked someone else. And it just, it just messed with my system. So I got so kind of drowned in this work that I had to do this kind of <clears throat> paperwork um, that it just derailed everything else I was doing, all of the production that I was doing, all of the videos that I was making. And then one day my boss pulled me into a room and he just said, do you know what? You're a really crap um, assistant producer. And he goes, I reckon you've lied about all of your experience because you're just, you're just, you're really crap. And he was just, he just went through this list of all these negative things about me. And I just kind of said, have you actually got anything good to say about me? And he kind of backtracked a bit. And then he said, look, you've got two weeks to get, you know, to pull your socks up and get yourself together. And then I think I just left like two days later. And so wow. that was a point where I just like didn't have a job. Um, you know, at that point you're thinking, God, my career's over. Um, I'm never going to work again. Um, all of those negative things going through your brain. I mean, I was kind of lucky because I had a production company on the side and I still did bits and bobs of work for HSBC and a few other clients. So I kind of went into that full time. But I was still kind of reeling from it a bit. And I was, you know, it was the first time where dyslexia had really kind of thrown me a curveball um, because I just, I'd managed everywhere else. And then I started getting into, um, there was lots of dyslexia, there was a dyslexia meetup group and I started going to that and I started chatting to dyslexic people. And I remember um, we went to, there was this meetup and they were, everyone was talking and someone stood up and said, you know, how do... I not do the things that I find difficult and just do the things that I, I really like. And this guy is probably gagging to speak for the whole time he stood up and it's slightly dubious what he did, but basically he was working for quite a big company and he'd go to places like Fiverr or people per hour and he'd pay people like $5 to do his work for him. And then he'd give it to his boss and his boss would go, yeah, that's great work. So he'd basically uh, kind of, um, offshored his work to other people and his boss knew that he was doing it but he was just wow. like fair play to you you're you know you've 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 gamed the system and i just thought that's such an interesting way of thinking not something that i do but i just thought 
there are all these ways that people are finding to game the system so they can use their dyslexic traits um as the first kind of in the first instance rather than having to do all the bits that they they hate and i thought this like there's all these people telling these stories like i've never heard these stories before so how can i get these stories out to other people that are feeling like i am and that was when i started doing the podcast wow I mean, I, I have a really similar experience actually. And um, I often find like your weakness is always your strength. And if you spend enough time with it, it's just so powerful, isn't it? And you can obviously see like the, the cod past has done such amazing things for other people. So in a way, I really want to thank your boss <laughs> for being an arsehole. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think, you know, when you do look back, it is those things that kind of destroy you, that yeah. make you, because they, mm. they really push you into things that you wouldn't have had the courage to do. But when you've got nothing to lose, you've got nothing to lose. So you just do them rather, you know, mm. there's no way I would have quit a job to start the podcast because that yeah. would have been madness. Um, but, and I didn't plan to start the podcast. I just thought I want to make a podcast about people with dyslexia. And I think, you know, what was so interesting about seeing your podcast was, you know, a lot of stuff about dyslexia is from an academic point of view or it's from a parenting point of view. <clears throat> And it's never about, or it's, you know, it's kids and it's never about the end user who's an adult, who's a functioning dyslexic um, that needs help. It's all these kind of other things that you could probably tap into, but it didn't speak, no, nothing spoke to me as an adult with dyslexia. And that was kind of the premise of the Cobcast, where I wanted these conversations. I wanted to help adults who were in the workplace, who were struggling, um, that didn't have a resource for, for, to find out information and, and to get help really. And, you know, it started as a podcast and it just grew and grew and grew and grew to a size that I wouldn't have even imagined really. And that support is so necessary for adults because you don't just grow out of dyslexia. <laughs> it doesn't just go away. And that's something that people think is real. I know mm. that I, I think it mainly, maybe it's because people hide it or suppress it or your sort of symptoms are, are not as concentrated and more diluted and, and you find your own strategies but it's it's definitely conversations that need to be happening and especially the scenario you just mentioned about your boss you know people need to to know how to handle those situations but what I'm getting to is can you tell us a little bit more about the compass? Yeah, so the Codpast is a podcast. It's called the Codpast because sometimes <laughs> as a dyslexic, I spell podcast as Codpast, which, um, <laughs> you know, is quite funny because because uh, I, I say, you know, Codpast and people go, oh, okay, cool. And then like six months later, I get an email going, oh my God, I get it. Oh, that's so clever. Um, uh, and I always say, yeah, it makes you, you know, it makes uh, neurotypical people get a little bit of a sense of what it's like to be dyslexic when I talk about the Codpast. Um, and it actually it's quite funny because I've got a little slot on. So I, I, I'm not in London at the moment. I'm in Wiltshire. So I, um, I've got a little slot on BBC Radio Wiltshire. And they always introduce me as the National Trust podcast producer who has his own podcast called The Codpast. And it's taken the presenter <laughs> about six months to be able to say Codpast properly. It's two years later. I've been doing it for about two years and he still stumbles sometimes. Um, <laughs> but it started out as a podcast and then... Just through the podcast, I started making connections. So then I was, I made connections with the, um, God, I can't remember what it's called. There's a dyslexia school in Fulham. 
but they um they did a kind of uh a ceremony every year to do with the school and the founders i think founders day or something like that and um they asked me to speak there so they've had people like um i don't know uh anthea turner or ruby wax and i was like okay now you want me to speak there (laughs) and that was the first time i'd spoken to an audience and it's about 300 people and then so off the back of that i started getting more and more kind of public speaking stuff and then you know the podcast started off which was very much about conversations and then i i just started falling in love with assistive technology and i really wanted to communicate what that could do for people because i didn't think it was communicated well like you're told what it what it does but you're not told how you can use it and I wanted to just create all of these scenarios that people could go oh my god I do that okay that's how I can use assistive technology so then we started the YouTube channel um, and the YouTube channel was just we had this thing called Disboxing, which was kind of I nicked from this guy called Unbox Therapy who does this channel on on YouTube um, but it was all about dyslexic technology um, so we used to kind of review assistive technology um, and yeah it it just became this kind of and then we started blogging we started doing blogs and stuff like that so it just became like a dyslexic media brand by accident um which did all of these things you know it had the website and the articles it had the videos it had the podcast and it had the public speaking we'd go out and we'd do talks with people we'd go to universities we'd do teacher training um we spoke new scotland yard we've spoken at loads of universities um yeah I mean we're just all over the place all over the country doing talks how um can I just ask like through all of these experiences by speaking at events is there anything that you've taken from working with students or is there anything in return that you've you've got the thing that I got the most from was doing the podcast and the interviews that I had with people and one thing that's really interesting that I guess I'm really privileged um for is I've got a podcast for pretty much every scenario. So when I've got an issue with a boss or something, rather than writing them a long email, I just say, can you listen to this podcast, please? And it completely explains the scenario to them. Um, So yeah, I guess, you know, that's one kind of um, plus side of having like, you know, we've got 30, 40 podcasts and there's, we cover so many different topics. So, you know, I always say to people, if you have got an issue and if you have listened to an episode, just, just forward it to someone. And my, I've had such a good reaction from that, actually. You know, I, a few years back, I changed bosses. Um, and that was one of the things when I changed over bosses to bosses, she, with her handover note, she included the podcast, one of the podcasts that I sent her just to give my new boss an understanding of some of the issues that may come up. Also, I've picked up about what you said about people sort of adjusting themselves to the system. But what if the system adjusts to help us? You know, that's something that's not really addressed as much. It's always sculpting um, to fit within that. Yeah, I think probably one of the best things about the, the COD pass, because I did have that issue in the workplace where I was scared to talk about dyslexia and I was scared to put my head above the parapet and just say, look, I'm dyslexic. I need to do things in a different way. I need this done in this different way. You know, for instance, I need spell check on my computer that's pumping out 3000 DVDs. Mm-hmm. I probably would, wouldn't have pushed the point, but doing the podcast meant that I was my own boss 
and I got to make as many mistakes as I needed to make to understand exactly how I could be successful. And when you know how you can be successful, you don't care about saying, I need this weird, quirky thing. Um, because I know that if I get it, I'm going to get results. Going up to someone and saying, I need this, and then you get it, and you still make mistakes, that screws with your mind. Because one, you've kind of put yourself out there, potentially a company spent money on getting software or training or whatever, and you're still screwing up. But once you know how you can be successful, that gives you the power to advocate. And I think advocating for yourself is the most important thing. Um, But that takes confidence and that takes understanding of how your dyslexia works. But now in the workplace, you know, I'm unapologetic about saying I'm dyslexic. I need this in this way. And it can be exhausting. It can be like banging your head against a wall. But I always say, you know, sometimes there's there's lots of IT stuff that just yeah, unbelievably painful to deal with. Um, and a lot of the time it's, well, oh, you've got an IT problem, fill in an IT request form. And I'm like, I can't fill those in. And they're like, yeah, well, that's how you do it. And I'm like, well, I'm dyslexic. I have difficulty with that. How, is there any other way? Well, you can make a complaint. How do I do that? Well, just send an email. Yeah, but I just told you. So I always say, if I was sitting here, so I have dyslexia, I have a disability and whether you want to call it a disability or not is up to you. But I think in certain situations, dyslexia being a disability is an advantage because people take it a little bit more seriously and I always say look I've got a disability if there was a blind person sitting here and they said I can't see would you say oh well just you know write an email to complain about it you take it seriously and you'd find a way to help that person why will you not do that with me and that often makes people go okay actually yeah this is something that I need to address and find a solution for So this is a moment where where we're going to bring us to our show and tell. Okay. And in the show, we like to ask our guests to bring on and showcase an item that represents AIDS or embraces their dyslexia. Is there an item that you can share with us that you believe helps or represents dyslexia in your life? Um, So I'm going to need to stand back from my camera a bit. Hold on. This, this (laughs) This is the thing. Can you see it? Ooh. This is this is my bag. This is my sack oh, magic. Wow. Um, so it's... <laughs> but basically for me, organization is key. Um, and <laughs> I kind of I kind of have lots of bags. So I have a bag for everything because I forget things all the time. So that bag has everything in it. Um, it has every single cable that I'll need in a day. It's got my hard drives. It's got pens. It's got waterproof clothing. It's got headlamps. <laughs> it's got um, like bags. It's got a laptop. It's got <laughs> bags in bags. Bags in bags. Like, you know, for when you go to the supermarket and you don't have a carrier bag. It's got a laptop. Oh, wow. It's got um, an iPad. Um And it expands. It can be as big as you need it to be and it can be as small as you need it to be. Yeah, it just means that when I get up in the morning and I go to work, I pick my bag up. I don't need to think about anything. Um, So I've got Mm. dual everything. So for instance, my laptop, I've got a charger at work that stays on my desk. I've got a charger in the bag that stays in the bag. I've got a charger at home that stays at home. So there's never going to be a situation where I've plugged my charger in at home and I go out and I forget my charger it's always there um and stuff like that I've got a bag for running I've got a bag for the gym and I've got duplicates of everything because it just means that I can pick up a bag and go and that's just one less headache that I need and I know that it's very unlikely I'm going to forget anything which is slightly weird dyslexicade but you know (laughs) 
And it sounds like you're, you know, incredible, you must be incredibly busy to have to have these things in place. And I like that you're alleviating that stress to just do what you need to do. And I think that's, you know, really admirable. You know, I saw in, in 2016 that you were on the BBC panel show um, discussing dyslexia and discrimination in the workplace. Can you tell us how you came to be a part of that discussion yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we did a lot of with the Cobpast is working with charities um, because, you know, they had access to dyslexic communities and there, there was stuff that we could do that they can do, you know, especially with the communication sides and videos and things like that. So we had pretty good links with charities. And that day was weird, actually, because which one are you talking about? Are you talking about the Victoria Derbyshire show? Yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was a weird day because that was the day that... I think someone who was dyscalculic sued Starbucks and I think they won because she, she got discriminated yeah. against. So they wanted people to speak about it. And I got a call from a charity and I think they, they didn't want the charity to go on because they didn't want to um, like give them free marketing. So they kind of said to them, is there anyone that you'd recommend? So they recommended me and a few other people. So we went on the Victoria Derbyshire show and then I got home and then I got a phone call from BBC World Service and they said, right, we've got, you know, we want you to come on the BBC World Service, but, you know, we've got a car coming to your house. So got in a car, went back to BBC and then did World Service. And in the cab on the way to the World Service, I got a call from Channel 5 and they were like, oh, we want you to oh come on God. the evening news. <laughs> so then, you know, we're like, BBC, can you, you know, get us a cab to Channel 5? So I did like all of this media <laughs> in one day. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was really weird because I am behind the microphone, but it's very different when you know, lots of people are watching. Um, and it, it was just really interesting because it, it gave me a chance to just communicate a lot of stuff and to, to kind of tell lots of people because the podcast had an audience, but it was a very much a dyslexic audience. And it was great mm -hmm. to have that opportunity on a real mainstream channels, just to really convey and try and just tell the story of people with dyslexia. And do you think since that interview in 2016, much has changed? It's really difficult to say because I can only talk about dyslexia from the point of view for, of myself, you know, what I see and, and what I experience. And I don't know. I mean, I think with all of the cuts that happen in, it's, it's difficult. And I, you know, as I said, if you're not in a position where you can advocate for yourself, it's hard. And also, you know, if you are a more junior person, because, you know, I'm I'm not massively senior, but I, I, I'm a line manager. I have a team and, you know, I do something very unique within the organisation that I work for. Um, so I'm kind of I'm not saying that I'm important, but, you know, what I do is of some significance. So people will be. Um, inclined to pay for stuff like you know my company just paid for me to have a dyslexia test to update my dyslexia test but if I was a cleaner or if I was someone really low level would an organization be willing to invest that into me so it depends where you are really as to whether dyslexia gets better I think one thing that has got better you know if you go back to the tech side of stuff um, assistive technology is becoming more and more accessible every day you know 
it can be really expensive. You know, it does a great job and, you know, there are ways to get it through access to work and, you know, schemes when you're at university and things like that. But if you fall outside of those things, it can be, you know, the cost can be prohibitive. But lots of organisations like, you know, um, Microsoft and Google and, and Apple are really building a lot of this software and accessible tools into their software. You know, um, Microsoft now has a really, really good dictation software. You know, you can just press a button and talk to your computer and it's pretty accurate. You know, it's like 98% accurate. You know, you can do full stops, you can do punctuation. Um, It also has text-to-speech facilities on it now. So from a point of view of technology, you know, things that people are building into mobile phones, I think there's a lot more support there. And now you're going to get into those situations where before, if you go to the IT team and go, well, I need Clara read or I need text help, they're going to go, you can't have it. Whereas if it's built into Microsoft, that's what they're using anyway. So that support is built into what you're already using. What can businesses do to make the workplace a more accepting place for people with neurodiverse? A bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you know what? What's interesting is I've got a podcast for that. (laughs) Sorry. So there is a podcast Um, that I, um, that I uh, kind of uh, get people to listen to when I'm saying, look, you know, companies have their structures and they do things the way they do them because of history and um, protocol and stuff like that. But people with dyslexia think differently. And Mm. sometimes you have to um, shape the company around the people that you have rather than trying to force them into the shape of your company. And I think if companies did that a little bit more, if, you know, they they saw that someone was good and they they were like, you know, well, that person needs to work in this specific way. Just let them work. You know, for instance, hot desking is a big thing. I can't hot desk. Um, and I kind of advocated and said, look, I, I need my own desk. I need a desk that I can have my pimped desk, you know, that I can come and plug my computer into and I can start the day. Because if I'm going to a new place every day, that's going to probably waste an hour of my day, just getting myself set up in the way that I need to be, getting my headspace right, and then getting on with work and then tearing down that workspace at the end. Um, you know, just listening to people and understanding how they work and how they can be more productive for you. Because at the end of the day, the better you can work, the better environment you have, the better your well-being, you can work more proficiently and get better value for that organisation. And the episode that I did when I went to GCHQ to interview kind of some of their, they called everyone a project manager, but God knows what everyone does. But um, one of the guys basically said, um, you know, GCHQ has been really kind of forward footed on getting neurodiverse people. And if you look back in their history, they've always been um, employing neurodiverse people before they even knew what neurodiverse was. And he said, you know, it's not a kind thing for a company um, to to kind of mould themselves around people with neurodiversities. It benefits them. You know, it's a stupid thing for them not to because they're missing out on people that have different ways of thinking that can, you know, especially in times like this where the status quo is just turned on its head. You need people that are agile, that can think and um, can do things differently. Um, And, you know, if you're someone who is 
always thinking about the status quo, you're not going to be able to do that. And if you empower people who think differently, who have different ideas, you know, that's only going to be a benefit to your company and, and, and benefit your organization. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. What advice would you give to young adults with dyslexia? Yeah, that's hard, actually. Um, I mean, I think... Believe in yourself and believe in your way of doing things. And I think with most people that I've spoken to, when they started being as dyslexic as possible, that's when they started to succeed. Like when you start doing things the way that your brain works and the way that your brain allows you to do things, that's when you can start to become successful. Um, that's easier than it sounds. You know, it takes a lot of work. Um, it takes a real sense of looking into yourself and, and really understanding how your dyslexia works. And once you understand how your dyslexia works, you can do all of the avocation and stuff like that. But it's just, you know, believing in the dyslexic way of doing things and trying to do things in that way as much as possible. And when you start doing that, you'll start seeing success and you'll start being uber dyslexic um, because that will be the best way to, to succeed. I needed to hear that and I need to continue <laughs> to hear too. that. <laughs> I might type something out and put it above my desk just to remind me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, we just wondered also, what does dyslexia mean to you? What does it mean to me? Um, dun, dun, dun. That's a difficult question as well. Um, <laughs> it is. They're pretty big closing <laughs> questions, aren't they? Um, I just think it's it's a different way of thinking. I always kind of have an analogy for dyslexia. Dyslexia is like the world's toughest gym, the world's toughest muddy runner. Because, you know, for someone to walk down the street, so let's say a neurotypical person, you just walk down the street. For a dyslexic person, you've got to climb over a wall, you've got to go under a tunnel, you know, you've got to you go across the monkey bars and stuff. And it's a pain and it's draining and it's depressing sometimes. But you build these muscles that when you then go into a situation where the person that just got to walk down the street has slightly tougher time and your time's made slightly easier, you just blitz through it you know you're hopping down the street on one leg backwards while they're struggling so i think it's it builds these muscles like my creative muscles they're like arnold schwarzenegger i'm like a problem solving maniac and i think that's what dyslexia gives me there's loads of really bad sides but i think once you harness it it's like having a sports car like a formula one car with the wrong tires like you're not you're never going to get anywhere as soon as you get the right tires you're elite you can do amazing things that other people that don't have the same engine as you can't do you know and but I think you know saying that it doesn't mean you're better than anyone else it just means you're different and you need those differences in teams you know you need someone who's analytics like my team is really diverse I couldn't do what I do without someone who's really good at numbers without someone who's really um analytical who's someone who's really organized you need all of those things um, to build a team and having a dyslexic person in your team is just only going to enhance what you can do. Just a huge, huge thank you, Sean, for for spending your evening with us and and kind of chatting with us about all these different things. And I honestly am uh, taking away so many different things from this conversation. And I'm going to do some more research on um, different assistive texts and mm. um, just what support 
I can get that I, I don't know is out there. Um, so just a huge thank you for, for contributing your time to ours. And we hope we can meet properly in person at some point. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to congratulate you guys on your podcast because it is a fantastic podcast. I love the production. I love the sound design. I love everything. And I I love the fact that it's another Dyslexic Year podcast that hasn't come from an academic point of view or a parenting point of view. You know, it is about adults. It's come from a place of art, you know, which most people with dyslexia occupy that space. So, you know, I love what you guys are doing. And I hadn't heard of your podcast before you guys contacted me and I've listened to them all. So, you know, you're doing a great job. Thanks so much. That means a lot. That does. Coming from a fellow podcast maker. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Oh, thanks so much, Sean. No worries. Oh, thank you. The thing that really caught my attention with Sean was that he he had to turn his attention to himself to fully understand himself and his abilities and what he could and couldn't do before he could thrive. And I just really understand that and feel that that's kind of a process that I'm in the middle of. So it's nice to hear someone on the other side of that really embracing all his faults and Um, things that he's good and bad at and like flexing those muscles I love that analogy we are working different muscles and we are learning to accept that we have to flex those muscles more than other people yeah the analogy with the tough mudder was fantastic it's the first time I've heard someone describe it in that way and it's exactly that kind of obstacle course but as you said Liz once you've developed those muscles you're, if you were in such a, a better place. And also just to add that I loved the way he put success on the map, that you shouldn't be ashamed of asking for something because it's an, it may you may feel embarrassed, but if it's going to enhance your performance or help you strive to success, then it, it's a no-brainer. This podcast is made with the wider Move Beyond Words team. Podcast production is by Niall Kalini-Taylor, Move Beyond Words project manager is Hannah Granger-Gibbs. Art and design is from Alex Colhan. PR and social media manager, Sean Gilling. And original music by Tom Parker. This series is funded by Arts Council England.